Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Gospel Saving Church. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. Amen? Amen. Praise be to God. Thank, thank Him so much for bringing us here. I do every day and, and helping me come up with these messages and helping me to teach you. Because I, I can't do this on my own. There's no way I can do this on my own. I'm helpless. Kind of when I look in the Bible, I just read it. And every morning I read my Bible. Well, yes, every morning I read my Bible and... I never come up with as much as I have to say on a Sunday morning for just a few verses or for a half a chapter as I do, you know, for a Sunday message. So you can always be thankful to God that he gives us the wisdom that he does because I don't come up with it by myself. Anyway, um, thank you for joining us in my home here and thank you everyone coming from SoundCloud all over the world. Praise be to God. I'm so thankful that you're here with us today to join us to hear another word of the Lord today out of the book of Matt, out of the Gospel of Matthew. If you guys want to join me in a word of prayer, let's pray real quick for our service and for you know the Lord to speak to us all, and then we'll get into seeing what God has to say to us. So, Lord, Lord, we thank you so much for bringing us here today. We thank you so much for your holy word. Thank you so much, dear God. For your holy word. Lord, it, it, it is truly a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path, Lord. It is truly, truly, truly. It shows us it's the light to the way we're supposed to go. Lord, we just um, thank you so much for giving it to us, Lord. It's just, it's just another expression of love, Lord. You could have just left us with nothing and abandoned us completely because we were worthless sinners. But Lord, instead, you chose to bless us with your holy word and and give us a real light and give us a proof that you're there by these words and, and the, the proofs that are all behind this word and, and just just the, the perfection of your word and the holiness of it, Lord, and just uh, the, the picture of you in it, Lord, the, the loving and, and wonderful God that you are. So, Lord, I thank you. Lord, I ask that you speak to us today, Lord God. Help us to understand what you have to tell us, Lord. Speak to us, Lord, whatever you'd like to say. And I pray, Lord God, that we would all receive mighty, mighty things from you today, Lord. Life-changing things from you today. We love you and we praise you. Pray that you bless this message and bless our time together, Lord. In Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. So if you guys want to turn, you guys can turn. I'll give my thoughts from last week, but you guys can turn to Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. That's where we'll be today in our message. Again, that's Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39. And I will read that all in just a moment after I give my thoughts from last week's message. It's not Easter, it's Resurrection Sunday. Satan has a lot of agendas against Christians and against people of this world. And I believe one of those big agendas has to be him getting people even Christians, God's children, into calling the resurrection of Jesus Christ Easter. Who else, listen to this, who else could be responsible for taking people's focus off the importance of Christ's resurrection and placing it on a bunny, eggs, candy, and stuff that doesn't even pertain to what Jesus Christ did for us on the cross and his defeat over sin and death in his resurrection from the dead. Nobody else could have done that but that evil Satan. 
leading, of course, people that were willfully wanting to be led by him. Just think about this. Jesus Christ lays down his life willfully and pays the sin penalty for mankind. He gets buried in a tomb. He rises from the dead to defeat death, conquering sin to offer people the hope of an eternal life with God forever because there is no hope in this life at all. I hope you guys got that through your minds last week after we read that. There is no hope in this life at all. But he offers us eternal life with God forever. And that is some sweet, sweet news. Amen. And Satan, leading evil people, overshadows this sweet and precious, amazing news with the name of an evil pagan-worshipping false religion woman, along with her mascot, the bunny, and her icon, the egg. And, that's not enough, he's smart enough to get Christians all over the world to celebrate the resurrection of Christ in this garbage way, and his defeat over sin and death in this garbage way, in this pagan way, for almost or around 1,500 years. All I have to say, brothers and sisters in Christ, my plea to you, that this should not be. It's a no-brainer. We need to start putting our feet down, talking to our pastors of our churches, spreading the word we're spreading the word of this when we're in our communities when we're talking to people just in our friends and family members as that pagan word is being used stop worshiping the god of heaven and earth with this pagan way and the evil pagan traditions of this evil woman that started it we need to put an end to the worship of easter that false woman that evil woman or Ishtar, Ishtar, and start worshiping the God of all the universe in a way that honors Him, not in a way that honors her. And if you want proof that God wants it this way, look back to the Old Testament anytime you're interested. And what you'll see in the Old Testament is God had all kinds of feasts and festivals and celebrations all throughout the year for the Jews that the Jews still celebrate to this day. Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Tabernacles. He had all kinds of different feasts and festivals and celebrations. But guess what they all did? They all had elements in them of different things that honored and glorified God. Okay, Not ever did God say, worship me in a way that a pagan woman was worshipped in the past. God never took the pagan traditions of the surrounding countries and said, Here, Jews, my Israelites, my people, worship me the same way that these false gods, that these peoples worship their false gods. Never, ever, ever did he say so not to do it once. So, Christians, it's not Easter. It's Resurrection Sunday. Spread the word. And let's start a holy revolution of truth. Please, 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 if you love God, stop saying that word and spread the word. 
Resurrection Sunday. Every year, get that in your mind. Praise be to God. All right. Well, let's move on to this week's message, shall we? We took a break from Matthew so we could focus on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, not Easter and its importance to us. But now let's get back to Matthew, get back into the Word, and and let's move forward through the Gospel of Matthew as we've been doing here every week, Gospel Steve Church. Our title of our sermon today this week, He Loved Them in Spite of Them. He Loved Them in Spite of Them. Of them. Let's read Matthew chapter 23, verses 37 through 39, and let's see what God has to say to us today. Jesus starts out here, verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So I'm going to give a quick recap. Last week we had our Resurrection Sunday celebration, our service. But I'm going to give a quick recap of the last several weeks, just for a you know, minute or two or three, just to get our minds focused on what God is saying to us here today. Remember, some weeks back we talked about how the Pharisees, remember they sent the scribe, and they came to Jesus to ask him this question, to get him to stumble. And they were really hoping, you know, we're going to get him this time. You know, They were always trying to get him and catch him in some way. Well, Jesus answers their question with the divine answer, cause, you know, not letting them succeed at making him stumble. And what does he do? He shuts their mouths. After that, while they're all gathered together after they send this scribe to go ask Jesus this question, Jesus goes over to them and he asks them a question to test them, remember, and give them a clue as to who the identity of the Christ really is hoping that they'll figure out that the Christ is really him. Well, remember, they couldn't or wouldn't answer, and they decided at that point to never question him again. And they refused to repent of what they thought about him. And so that was the end. But after that, Jesus turns from that question that they couldn't answer. He turns to the multitudes that are around him, plus his disciples, while the Pharisees and the scribes were still all there around him. And he completely and gives them the honest-to-God truth about these religious leaders, telling those that are around him what kind of people that they really were. Remember, we talked about that two weeks ago. He told them about how they were the ultimate hypocrites. Remember, these fellows were so hypocritical, I believe that their picture should actually be in the dictionary next to the word hypocrite. That's how hypocritical that they were. Literally, Merriam-Webster online says that a hypocrite is a person who puts on a false appearance of virtue or religion. Well, these guys had mastered that concept. These guys had mastered that, that idea that, 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 you know, outward look of religiosity, that outward look of holiness, they'd mastered it. And Jesus, 
to his disciples and to his multitudes that are around him, calls them out on it right in front of all those that are following him, exposing them for the real hypocrites that they really are. And, of course, we know that this was very bold of Christ to do this because they were still right there and they already didn't like him. They already, in fact, hated him. But, of course, we know that the Bible says of Christ that he is both the lion and the lamb. He is the lion of the tribe of Judah and he was the lamb that was slain for our sins, right? And well, here, right there two weeks ago, we saw that lion come out. He just goes lion on him and just roars and, and tells all those that are around him the kind of people that they really are exposing their hypocrisy to the people who thought so really holy of them, thought really so well of them. Was Jesus doing this evil? Was this an evil thing that Jesus did, calling them out for their evil, calling them out on their hypocrisy? I don't believe so, absolutely not. You see, the truth is the truth. And Jesus was just telling them like it was. God loves truth. He hates a lie. And now it may sound to us like Jesus was attacking these guys and speaking evil of them. But I don't think he was. Because, you know, the Bible says that we're not supposed to speak evil of anyone, especially those in authority. So did Jesus really do this as he kept calling them out on their evil? I don't think so. Because why? Although Jesus said things that were offensive to these guys, he spoke the truth to them. And you know what? In America, we have a pandemic going on around right now. Nobody really wants to hear the truth. Nobody really wants to speak the truth because the truth is kind of offensive sometimes. You know, you ever hear that old saying, the truth hurts? Well, it does. If you're doing something and you're not supposed to be doing it, and somebody comes up to you and says, hey man, you know, you're, I noticed you're doing that, and you know, the, 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 the law says, or you know, if they're a Christian, well, God says, you know, chances are, if you tell somebody that, they're going to get offended. And generally, people do. But that doesn't mean that we're not supposed to do it. That doesn't mean that we're not supposed to tell people, hey, by the way, brother or sister, or hey, man, you're breaking the law. Or hey, man, that's not really how a Christian's supposed to act. Because Jesus did it to the Pharisees. He called them out on their evil ways. He told the people around him about their evil ways. And we know that Jesus wouldn't do anything against God's word. So we know that that's not evil for us to do that. In fact, That's bold and courageous of us to do that. And this is what God is looking for. God is looking for men and women to stand up and say, Hey, stop being so afraid of people. I love people, but if people are wrong and they're in some type of sin, the Bible talks about bringing someone back from some type of sin and that being a good thing in God's eyes. Remember, it's only evil to say something against someone or to say something that's offensive to to someone if it's not true, if it's false information. It's only slander if it's false information that you're speaking about that person to others or to their face. It's only slander if it's false. If it's true, like Christ always did here, we know that it's a holy thing. We know that we can do that for he do that. Because we know that Jesus would never speak slanderously with false info of others, just truthfully. Now, 
bringing us around to the topic of this week. With all the times that Jesus Christ called these religious leaders out on all their hypocrisy, with all the times that he said the things that he did, and with all the times that these guys came at him, attacking him, and testing him. Remember all the ways which they came, you know, they'd come and they'd just say these awful things about him. He'd cast a, a demon out of a man, and then they'd say, oh, he cast out demons by, the, by Beelzebub, by the ruler of the demons. And then Jesus would come back with something, and they were always kind of going back and forth, and they would speak evil of Jesus, and they would say false things about Jesus, and then Jesus would come back and say, you know, truthful but offensive things to them, but, but they were the truth, unlike the things that they told him. It'd be easy to look at their little communications that they had and Jesus' response to them, and it'd be easy to think that Jesus really didn't care about these religious leaders, wouldn't it? I mean, after all, listen to this arsenal. I came up with just a little bit of a compilation of some of their things that they went through. Matthew 12, 34, Jesus says to the religious leaders, Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. So he said, you have an evil heart, because out of your mouth you speak evil things, you brood or child of a snake. That's not a good thing to call somebody. That's kind of harsh. A snake was con- is considered a, a kind of the the low kind of nasty kind of like you know deceptive kind of you know from the Garden of Eden obviously, and so now we hear Jesus say, "Brood of a snake, child of a snake, you're evil. What comes out of your mouth comes from your heart. You're evil." Whoo, that's kind of harsh. Matthew twenty three thirty three again, serpents. So he called them snake. Snakes, brood of vipers, again, children of harsh snakes. How can you escape the condemnation of hell? So he's telling them, you snake in the grass. We still use that kind of phrase today. You could picture that today. You snake in the grass, you could say. You evil, deceptive, wicked person. You're going to hell, and really, how can you even escape it? There's really no escape for you there. That's just two. The Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus calls them hypocrites 13 different times. I was called a hypocrite for standing up against a festival at a church that really wasn't a Christian festival. I was called a Pharisee or a hypocrite by somebody I knew, and that was just once, and ooh, that hurt because I'm really not. Pharisee. I speak the truth about what I see, and people don't like to hear the truth. And so people lash out at you when you speak the truth, and they don't like that. And I I got called a hypocrite once, and it hurt. He calls these Pharisees hypocrites 13 different times. But they were all true, of course. And the truth hurts. Not to mention all the parables that he spoke about them that were against them. Remember, he told them the parable of the wicked vine dressers and all this other stuff. He gave them so many parables to their faces that were all describing all their evil that they were doing, and he was calling them out on it, and he was exposing their evil. Many times he gave parables against them. Many times, in fact, 
And we're not going to go with them individually, but Jesus blasted them with the truth all the time. And with all this being said, it sure would seem on an outward, it sure would be easy to think or see the fact that Jesus Christ really didn't care about these religious leaders or these rejecting Jews at all, right? I mean, how could he say such things if he really cared or if he really loved? Well, is that is there is one truth here. Jesus really didn't care about them much at all. And that's right, he didn't. What did he do? He loved them in spite of them. Read verse 37 again in our scripture and I'll show you how he loved them in spite of them. He says again, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. This is a cry now. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. If you just take that first part, you'll see that what he does again He calls them out in that first part, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her. He calls them out again on their evil. He kind of points it out again. Hey, you people, you Jews that have been rejecting me, you not only reject me, but you you kill and stone my holy prophets, my holy people that I send to you. And of course how the Jews of Jesus' generation treated him. He's referencing that there too. And how they're going to kill him for, you know, he knows what's going to happen in the future. So right there, first part, he goes ahead and calls them out again on their evil. And you may be saying, well, where, Pastor Ed, where is the loving them in in spite of them that you'd say here? Where do you see it? He just called them out again. Well, now, I'll show you something real interesting here in the the middle part of that verse. That although he just said that awful, truthful thing about them, look at what he says next. How often, what do you think of when you hear the word often? I think of all the time. How all the time... I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. Do you realize what he just said? He just said that he and God Almighty loved them in spite of them. And he says it in a couple different ways. I want you to listen how he says it in a couple different ways. First... He says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you and your fathers were and are murderous and evil. And I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. The word wanted to gather or wanted to in the Greek is thelio or thelio. However you want to say it, I don't really know Greek, I'll do my best. Listen to some of these definitions for the word I wanted, or the words I wanted, or the word thelio in the Greek. To will, 
to have in mind to intend. So I willed, I had it in my mind, I intended to gather you together to be resolved or determined to purpose. I really purposed it in my heart. I I really made a resolution. I really determined it to gather you together to desire, to wish, to love. I would love, I desire, I wish you would come together under me to like to do a thing to be found doing. To like or to take delight in and have pleasure in doing. I would be so happy if I would just be able to gather you under my wings, please. I beg of you, I, I plead with you, come. I will it, I want it, I desire it. And if you use these de- this definition, these words of this definition, in what Christ just said, he just said that his longing, desire, when you put it together with the first part of the verse, that his longing and his desire and his passion for them to be gathered together to him was in spite of them being murderers. And in the midst of them murdering those God sent to them. And of course how they would soon murder Jesus. I don't know about you, but to me, this is a passion that blows my mind. They're murderers. They've stoned God's holy people that he sent to them. Those that were living righteous before God. They're about to kill and stone. They're about to kill and crucify Christ on a cross. The only begotten Son of God who did no wrong. Listen to the longing, though, and the desire that God has to call them to Himself, despite the fact that they're murderers. Wow. They were murderers, folks. I want to explain it to you like this. Think of someone that comes into your home, wherever you are listening all over the world, and they come into your home while you're sleeping and they kill your whole family. And they shoot you trying to kill you, but they don't make it and you stay alive. And then you go and you call the police and the police come and they bust them and they break them and here they are now on trial and you're a witness against them and they've got the death penalty. They just cold-blooded murdered your whole family and left you for dead, but they didn't succeed. And now here you are to testify against them and they're guilty. Fingerprints are everywhere. Guns in their hands. They did it. They even admitted it. And you stand up on the stand and you say, they're guilty. They killed my whole family. But you know what? I would love it if they would just have a relationship with me. I would love it if they would just come to be my friends. Because that's what God just did here. He wanted to be friends 
Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who are murderers, you who killed and stoned those that I sent to you, oh, I love you so much, I want you to come to be mine. Wow. I don't know any greater love or greater desire than this from anybody that I know at all. And there's even a deeper way that Christ shows us and God shows us that He loves them in spite of their evil, in spite of their wicked hearts. Look at this second idea that Christ gives of these guys in spite of them. Not only did He say that He longed and desired to bring them into fellowship with God in repentance and to salvation, despite their being murderers and evil, But Jesus just said that he longed and desired to do this as a mother hen would her chicks. Do you see the visual picture that God gave you there? There was one time when an old friend of mine showed me this picture, and it was on YouTube, and this hawk was flying around in the air, and baby chicks were all around and their mother was kind of in the middle. So the mother of these chicks sees this hawk and she starts making a noise and, you know, making all these gyrations and everything. And the baby chicks knew, oh no, there's danger. Let's, we, we got to go get under mom because that's what they do. The chicks know a certain signal from their mom and the, the chicks run to the mother and the mother lays down her life for the children and covers the children all under her while the hawk is ready to strike and catch a chick to kill it, to catch it to eat. So what the mom just did by doing that, by putting the babies under her body, she left the hawk only one person to get. Only one creature was still there for the hawk to get. Do you know who that creature was? The mom. So the mother hen, mother chick, mother hen, lays down her life for the chicks to protect them. And this is the visual picture that Jesus just gave of him and God trying to draw these murderers, the ones who killed the prophets and stoned those that came to them, my babies. You're in danger. In this case, the devil's about to get you because you're rebelling against me. You won't come. Come, gather under my wings. I want to protect you from sin and hell. I want to protect you. Come, get under my wings. That's the love that God and Jesus has for these people in spite of them. Despite the fact of all the ways that they treated Jesus. Because although Jesus told them the truth and he, He told them the truth, but it hurt. He told them the truth about the way they were. They bring accusations and lies against him. They weren't right. He was. And when you couple the way that Jesus 
that they treated Jesus and his life among them, and they treated God, and they treated the prophets of God and those God sent to them, the fact that God still loved them enough to say, I still wanted to gather you together. I still wanted to protect you. Come to me. Beyond, it's love beyond comprehension of love that I can understand. When God showed me this love that he had for them, that I'm describing to you now, not too long ago, right shortly before I, set up, I was setting up for this service, it, this actually brought me to tears. As it almost brought me to tears here while I was preaching, but I just couldn't because I was too focused on what I was saying. Because this love is beyond a love that I can understand. I want you to think about... Think... To think that God actually still loved these hard-hearted, wicked religious leaders and rebellious Jewish nation with this longing and passionate love, even after they've constantly attacked and murdered those that God sent to them. Plus the way that they treated Christ and how they would eventually kill him is a testament to just how great his love really is. There's no wonder why somebody a long time ago made a song called Amazing Grace. For how sweet it is, the sound, and that is God's amazing grace. Think about this human faction only from a human's perspective, right? I want you to think about this. Usually in our human societies, and I've been guilty of this in the past, I, I've, I've come under sin for this in the past, and I... I know others that, and I know people, but usually if someone just wrongs someone one time, really hard, like, you know, not even as harsh as a murderer, you say, but if anybody just like steals from you, or anybody rips you off, or takes advantage of you, just just even one time, and let's say they do it, you know, for like $5,000, people have a tendency to strongly or extremely dislike that person. Or you could just say the real word for it, to hate him. Because that's actually what the definition of the word hatred is. It's an extreme dislike for another after just one offense. People easily have hatred in their hearts for someone after just one offense. Big offense in our eyes, but to God, I think murder's worse, you know. But pretty big offense like theft. Well, think about it from God's perspective now. The nation of Israel had offended God off and on for thousands of years at the time Christ came. Murdered and stoned those that God had sent to them. The religious leaders had not given God, remember we talked about this a few weeks ago, parable of the wicked vine dressers, they had not given God what God wanted, the praise and authority of the people, they had taken it all for themselves, and they had done this for thousands of years, encouraged the people to worship false gods, like Baal, or Easter, 
And this is what the religious leaders and the, the Jews had done for thousands of years before Christ came. And yet, in spite of all this, Jesus Christ still says, as he stands as God in the flesh on earth, Verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to her, how often I longed, I willed, I wanted, I hoped, I would have loved to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. If that's not love in spite of them, then I don't know what would be. Because I know that I've had a strong dislike for people after they've just hurt me one time. And I knew I was wrong and I repented. Nevertheless, I, I still had a bit of hatred for people in the past because they've hurt me one time. I don't know how I could still love somebody. Search your hearts, people. Could you really love someone after they had hurt you and scorned you for thousands of years, if you had thousands of years, I would think that the more it would happen, over thousands of years, I would get so wore out that hatred would fill my heart, and I would just, if I were God, destroy everything. Yet, how long I longed, I willed, I desired to gather you under my wings. And lay down my life for you. I'll take the punishment you deserve. If you just get under me. I'll let the hawk get me. Let me protect you, my murderous children. Wow. What was, and still was, what was the response when Jesus came? What is their response even still today as a Jewish nation as a whole? What is their response to the longing and passionate love that God showed them through those thousands of years of Him reaching out to them, along with the love that Christ showed them while He was on earth in the flesh? Read the last part of 37. But you were not willing. They said no. We see the danger coming. Look at the hawk in the air. We see it. No. We don't want to come to you. No. So they didn't come to God. And so they weren't saved all those thousands of years, many of them, from God's wrath or sin or hell. You know, in the past, when my sole mission for God was evangelism, Many times I would try to walk, talk to others about Christ and, and what it meant to be saved, and they would often quote John 3.16 to me. You know, for God so loved the world, you know, that He gave His only begotten Son, you know, that all that should believe in Him, you know, would not perish and have everlasting life, you know. They would quote that to me as far as what it meant to be saved, you know. Oh, for God so loved the world. And one time God showed me this, because I was kind of like betwixt for a little bit there. I was, well, you know, God, you do love people. Yeah, I mean, that's salvation. You're love, right? I mean, that's salvation. But God showed me this one, this one thing, this one time to answer them. 
He said to me one time, and I'll never forget it. I was on my bed in my bedroom, and I was praying, meditating, reading the Word of God, and he said to me this, just because I love everyone doesn't mean that that makes everyone in the world okay with me or saved in my eyes. So I asked the people the same question after they would talk on John 3.16, and their response was, of course, you know, I'd say, well, okay, so God so loves the world. I'd say, so does that mean that everybody's okay then? Does that mean because God loves everyone that everyone's okay? And their response was generally, no, of course it's not. And I'd say, well, why not? And they'd give me different answers, and some were right and some were wrong. But the correct biblical response is, here's why, just because God loves everyone but, and doesn't make everyone okay with God, is because everyone doesn't love God back. And this is exactly what Jesus Christ just said about these religious leaders in Israel and the Jewish nation as a whole that rejected God willfully. No matter how much God willed, desired to draw the Jewish nation to himself, they were not willing to come to him and have a relationship, a relationship with him and hence getting the salvation that he offered. How sad is that? God willed to love them in spite of them, and yet they chose to reject him willfully and decided not to come to him. That's a terrible thing. I have to break off for just, just a little time, bear with me, from the main idea, the main subject of this sermon. And I have to break off with another point that's really moved down my heart. And God was speaking it to me all week long as I was setting up this sermon. And I, I thought, well, I'm, this, this really sermon's not about this, Lord. And, and uh, he, he was like, well, yeah, it's going to be there. And I said, I don't see it. And so I didn't see it and didn't see it didn't see it until just the other day toward the end of the week. And, and this is what God wanted me to say, wanted me to talk about, about this section that we're in here. You see, there's a belief in our world today that if God wills something to happen, it happens. And the people that believe this idea, they have what they call Calvinism as a belief that they believe in. And they call this idea that if God wills something to happen, it happens. They call it irresistible grace. There's this ideology in our world today, and it's called Calvinism, and there's five main points to it. And Irresistible grace is one of those points that they have that they believe that whatever God wills to happen will absolutely happen because nobody is stronger than God, is what they'll tell you, and nobody can resist God's will because if God wills it to happen, it's going to happen. He's sovereign. That means he's in control totally over everything. Well, if you don't believe me, because it may sound a little hard to believe, but it is, and if you believe that, I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't believe that because I read this and I'm going to talk about it. If you don't believe me, you can look this up for yourself. A very well-known Calvinist called John Piper, he wrote a, certain, he wrote a little paper, it's online, you can find it, John Piper, titled Irresistible Grace. And if you don't believe that's what Calvinists believe, 
he opens up this first paragraph of his document and says this. The doctrine of irresistible grace does not mean that every influence of the Holy Spirit cannot be resisted, which is true. We, we know that in Scripture. That is a true statement. God can, you know, the Holy Spirit can be unctioning you or, you know, kind of leading you to do something, and you could just say, no, I'm not going to do it. I, I, I got that part. It means, the, doc, you know, the doctrine of irresistible grace means that the Holy Spirit can overcome all resistance and make his influence irresistible. Well, that part I don't agree with. He goes on to say in the third line or paragraph of this document, the doctrine of irresistible grace means that God is sovereign. Again, God's in control of everything and can overcome all resistance when he wills. That means... Case it was over your head a little bit. If case, if God wills something, then it's going to happen. That means even if God wills you to be saved, you're saved. No choice. But if God doesn't will you to be saved, then you just don't get saved, even if you want to. Of course, he quotes some scripture that he believes supports this false idea. But I had this question. If this idea is true, then how come Jesus Christ just said in Matthew 23:37, I'll read it with the, you know, all Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And remember we talked about it, that little word or words in English, I wanted, is that Greek word, thelio, with that definition of to will, have in mind, or intend. Jesus just said, how long I, I will, my will, my intention, my desire is to bring you to salvation to me. But you were not willing. Here we see that God's will was to gather the religious leaders and the rejecting Jewish nation as a whole to himself, but yet they were unwilling and their will to not come overcame God's will or desire, or longing, or passion to bring them. So I can't understand why anybody believes this idea of this point of Calvinism called irresistible grace, when we easily see here that the Jews rejected God's will for their lives to be His spiritual children and be saved from their sins. But unfortunately, people do. You know, it's a sad thing because they also believe that if God doesn't will people to get saved, they won't get saved. And they also believe that God just chooses some, but doesn't choose the majority. And if you're not chosen, then you can't get saved. When in the Bible we read that God's desire is that none should perish. None. Who's none? But that all should come to repentance. Repentance is a turning to God. So if God wills that none and all 
who's the none and who's the all? Because God wills that everyone comes to be his spiritual child. Well, back to our verses for study today. So God willed or desired for Israel to come to him and they rejected his will. We got that. What was the end result of their decision to reject God? Look at verse 38. Jesus says, See, you could say because of your unwillingness, because of my draw, but your rejection, see, your house is left to you desolate. Their rejection of God made their house desolate, or eremus, defined as, look, listen to some of these definitions, solitary, lonely, desolate, uninhabited, uninhabited, excuse me, used of places, a desert, a wilderness, deserted places, lonely regions, an uncultivated region fit for pasturage. Used of persons, deserted by others, deprived of the aid and protection of others, especially of friends, acquaintances, kindred. Of a flock, deserted by the shepherd. Of a woman, neglected by her husband, from whom the husband himself withholds himself. So what happened? Because of their decision, they said no to God. God said, I still love you, but I have to back away because you don't want me. God called out to them, calling them to repentance, and they rejected his call to them, and so God then withdrew himself from them as their husband. Just as if a wife or husband from a human perspective, were to reject their spouse and turn away from them. That's exactly what God did to the Jews, to the nation of Israel, because of their rejection of His love and of His drawing them to Himself. We know that God definitely withheld Himself from them as a nation because Israel was again utterly destroyed in 70 AD by by Titus. And they were dispersed all over the world and eventually terribly and horribly killed and persecuted all over the world. And Hitler was just one of the things that they went through and just just a horrible time they had because of their rejection of God and those that he sent to them trying to draw them to himself. Their house was left to them desolate, barren, like a husband that would leave his wife alone and withhold himself from her. God's desire, as I said, 2 Peter 3, 9, is that none should perish and that all should come to repentance. But if a person or nation is definitely not willing to come to him and they reject every advance from God's Holy Spirit to draw them to God, then God cannot force them to come to himself because that would be a violation of their free will. If God takes away our free will, then he forces us to come to him. If he forces us to come to him, then we become robots with no choice. And our love for him is not genuine. And who 
You can ask yourself this, because I know I've asked myself this before. Who would want someone's love if it's forced? Answer it in your mind, please. Because I know that I don't want anybody's love if it's forced. Because it means that it's not a true relationship. And yet another point to why irresistible grace is not correct doctrine, nowhere in Scripture does it say do we read it all ever. In all of our 66 books of the Bible, do we read that God ever forces someone to come and have a relationship with Him? Wow. So sad. All right. Last Scripture for study for today. So although the Jews are still, as today, in a woeful, hopeful terrible, rejectful situation against God to this day. There are some, praise God, Jews for Jesus in ministry, you can go to and check this out, but there are some Jews who have decided to listen to the drawing and the leading of the Holy Spirit, and they have come to God. They have come to Christ, and they have been saved. Praise God. And although Jesus says here in verse 38, this is something important that we can't ever forget, that their house, he says, is left to them desolate, He never says here, or in fact anywhere in the Bible, that their house would be left desolate to them forever. We know from other scriptures in the Bible that God will never cast Israel off forever. They are his chosen people, the ones that he chose, not chose him, but that he chose. And Jesus then talks about this confirming idea in our last verse of today, verse 39. He says, For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here is speaking of the time of his second coming. They're rejecting him now. They're going to kill him now. They're seeing him now. They're going to see him to the end, but they're not going to see him again. Again meaning his second coming again. And in his second coming, the Bible speaks about a revival for the Jews. The Jews are going to raise up. They're going to realize that the devil's duped them. They're going to realize they've been deceived for all these years. They're going to realize. And what are they going to do? They're going to turn back to God with one heart. And the Jews will once again not only just know of God, but they'll be His children, again, His spiritual children. They'll come, they'll surrender, they'll give their lives to Christ, and they'll realize that Jesus was the true Messiah as as a nation, as a whole, and they're going to be saved and redeemed by God. And the Bible talks about this. This idea continues to reinforce the fact that God's love never ends for His Jewish people. There's a song out there, there's a Christian song that's real popular in our day and age, 2015, April 12th, and the name of the song is One Thing Remains, and I encourage you to look it up on YouTube, it's a very sweet and awesome song. One Thing Remains, and that's the, and that's the title of the song, and the chorus goes a little something like this. Your love never fails, it never gives up, and it never runs out on me. Your love never fails, it never gives up, and it never runs out on me. In this chorus is a perfect phrase that describes God's love for the Jews in spite of them and their rejection of Him. 
God's love never fails, never gives up, and it never runs out on them. So God really does love the Jews in spite of them, even though they've rejected him completely. That's amazing. But you know something? There's even greater news than that today. Of course, that song is more than just a beautiful description of God's love for the Jews. It's also a beautiful description of how much God loves everyone, Jew and Gentile. For you see, 1 John 4, 8, For God is love. And He never changes. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In 2 Timothy 2.13, he cannot deny himself, for God, again, is love. Which means that just like God loved these wicked religious leaders and the rejecting Jews of the past present in spite of them, he also loves us in spite of us. Despite all our evil, hateful, wretched, and terrible ways. He loves us in spite of us. He loves you no matter what evil or heinous sin you have ever committed in your whole entire life. He still loves you. And his factional love gets even deeper when you think about it like this. Not only does he love you in spite of you, and how evil you really are. But listen to this. He knows every sin that you've ever committed in your whole entire life. Even those sins that you've forgotten about. He knows them all. He, in fact, the Bible says, has perfect knowledge of all of those sins, no matter how dirty, filthy, disgusting, terrible, heinous, or hidden, or secretive that they were or are. He knows about them all. And guess what? He chooses to love you in spite of them anyway. That's love. I've got some things about me in the past that I've forgotten about that I know that I'll never let anybody know because they're so horrible. I could never let anybody know about them. And God knows my sin in the past. Just like He knows yours. Every secret thing in your heart you've ever thought, willfully, that was a heinous abomination against God. And he loves you. He chooses to love you anyway. Despite those things. Isn't his love extravagant? Amen. Unfortunately though, just because he has love for you doesn't mean that that means that you're automatically saved and you're automatically in a right standing before him right now, because of his love for you. I I talked about this earlier in the sermon. Something else to think about. 
in that idea. Just because God loves you doesn't make you okay. It's a warm, nice feeling it is. But what do we got to do to get that love? What do we have to do to receive that love? What do we have to do? Think about this. If Bobby loves Susie, but Susie doesn't love Bobby, will they ever really have a relationship together? No. Because why? Susie is not receiving. She's not giving her love back to Bobby. She's not accepting Bobby's love for her. Oh, God's like Bobby. Forgive me, God. I'm not calling you just a man, but you're like Bobby, Lord. And we're kind of like Susie. As God crawls out to us and cries out to us and longs and wills and desires for us to be gathered under His wings, but we just are unwilling then His love doesn't mean anything to us. And we just reject it. And it never benefits us. His love only benefits you if you respond to His love. So where are you at with God today? Has He been calling you, but you've been rejecting His advances to have a relationship with Him? Well, today God just told you through me and through the... Example that he gave in Scripture that no matter how evil or how wicked these guys were, carries over to us, God's still the same today, that God still loves you anyway. God still loves you anyway. What are you going to do with that knowledge? Will you willfully continue to reject him like the Jews of Jesus' day did to him? Or... Are you going to turn and be like a disciple who turned to Christ after they realized his love for him, his love for them, and they started to follow him? God leaves that in our choice, to be our choice. And both God and I hope that you today are making or will make the right choice soon. If you would like to accept God's friendship and invitation to relationship, then today, right now, don't wait. Turn to God and lift up your voice to heaven and cry out to Him in prayer and confess your sins to Him right now. Surrender your life to Him and say, God, I want to love you back. I need you in my life. Please, God. Please, God. Come into my life. I need you. God is waiting for you. Will you please respond if you're not there already to His calling and His drawing you to Him and turn to Him today. He's waiting. And His will is for you to come to Him. Please come. Let's pray. Thank you so much, Lord God, for your word today. Thank you so much for your love for mankind. Thank you, Lord God, no matter how evil we are, you still love us anyway. And you gave us that example with the religious leaders of Jesus' day, that after they just got done just constantly over and over and over again for all his ministry, just deriding him, speaking evil against him, and treating him badly, and, and, and saying bad things about him, Lord, that yet still Jesus stands as you there in the flesh, 
and says, how long I wanted to gather you together, you murderers, but I still love you anyway. How long I wanted to save you, yet you were unwilling. Lord, I pray today that whoever's listening to this message right now, Lord God, if they're not in your arms, Lord, you would convict their hearts of their sin. And then, Lord, that you would show them that you are willing for them to come to you and that you do love them, Lord, and that your desire is for them and you long for their desire to be for you. Please, Lord God, draw them to yourself. And I pray, Lord, that their hearts would be changed, Lord, after hearing your kindness and your goodness and your love today. And they would come to you and be yours. And I ask all these things in Jesus Christ's mighty name. Amen.